Many of the folk tales that inspire us, teach us, or just intrigue us have been passed down through many generations. In some cases, such as our very first episode looking at Slenderman, we can find a route for the story. In most, we cannot. But they draw on the knowledge, the beliefs and the imaginations of our ancestors. We can look many of these up on the internet, or read about them in books and magazines. Our ancestors couldn't do that. In days gone by, the dissemination of knowledge and belief was very much an oral practice. Many of the stories that we have today, both the well-loved fables and the more obscure lore, survive because of the practices and skills of the storytellers. So, what is the place for the storyteller in our modern age? How has the skill changed? And what place does the art of storytelling have in today's culture? I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Joining me on this episode of the Folklore Podcast is professional storyteller John Buckeridge. John is a classically trained actor, a fine singer and musician, and his company, Parable Arts, searches, develops and retells the lost and forgotten folk tales of our ancestors. Sit back, relax, and let us tell you a story. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Folklore. The beliefs, traditions and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present. But under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history, and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Hi, John. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Ah, a pleasure. It's lovely to have you here. Now, today we're going to look at storytelling. Now, your bio tells us that you are primarily an actor, classically trained actor, um, but also a professional storyteller. You have formed your company, Parable Arts, and describe what you do as guerrilla storytelling. Would you like to define what you mean by that? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, as you mentioned, I, I'm a classically trained actor and I, I, I love acting in, in that kind of format. Um, but uh, ooh, three or four years ago, um, I formed Parable with the express purpose of, of kind of exploring the craft of storytelling and um, and bringing that back to the fore as a... As a um, as a theatrical or a communications method, um, 
I guess, guerrilla theatre or guerrilla storytelling or guerrilla arts. Basically, the idea is that I, I wanted to make something that could go anywhere and everywhere and kind of returning to the origins of storytelling in, in very um, uh, community-based settings and, and, and looking at uh, storytelling in kind of troubadour and bardic traditions. The, the linking theme is that it goes anywhere. And you don't have to have a huge, you know, 500-seater venue with perfect sets of lights and this and that and the other. You can take a good story that people will want to listen to anywhere. And as long as you have that, then that's all you really need. And so that's what Parable was uh, established to, to, to explore. And um, we sort of cross all the artistic disciplines on that. And I'm a firm believer that you can tell a story through any artistic medium, through most mediums, really, but certainly through any artistic media. And... Um, I uh, and I, I wanted to, to establish Parable uh, as, as a multidisciplinary arts organisation in order to be able to um, explore that across all the different artistic disciplines. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that pretty much answers relatively comprehensively. It certainly does. That's an excellent answer. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you mentioned there about about going back to kind of the earlier roots of storytelling. Now, mm. um, obviously, storytelling goes back uh, until kind of the the evolution of the human race in many ways in many different forms so i mean part of what you describe for for your mission statement if you like for your method of storytelling is to kind of bring back some of these forgotten stories very much the kind of thing that we're trying to do on this podcast by by looking at old pieces of folklore so why is storytelling in all of these forms so vital to us as historians or folklorists primarily um certainly i mean i i can't really speak for historians per se in not having the academic uh, qualifications to back that up but as folklorists um I'd say that the stories are the heart of it. Um, they're the very basis of it. Uh, certainly, when you look back at cultures who who didn't have a recorded history per se, um, or, or relied on on outsiders to try and chronicle their histories, the, the the essence of them is is held in the stories. And without those stories, they will they'll die. And it, and it comes down to people. Um, uh, people like us, I suppose, uh, our elite core of people who uh, who have that that uh, drive, that passion to to not let them die. Um, and and for me personally, it doesn't really matter whether you believe that these stories are real or whether you believe that the the um, uh, the, the the sort of essence around them and the supernatural essences are necessarily real. But what matters is that the stories and the culture and the history and the um, and the heritage, certainly, uh, of, 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 of those of us who, who still um, call these, these collection of islands home, the heritage of that is preserved and is, um, is held over for, for future generations. It's something that every person who, who lives here, who calls it home, has a right to. Um, and it's a great shame if that disappears. I think in other cultures, they are much, much better at recording their history and at honouring their history and being attached to it. Um, possibly in some cultures, that's because their country is massively younger, uh, thinking of our American cousins. But um, certainly within our culture, 
we have let those stories slip a little bit and and as a uh, as a folklorist as a as a storyteller as an artist um and as someone who just loves a good story i felt there was a kind of incumbent need upon me to make sure that another generation of people at least had something of those stories and had something of the heritage that they have a right to um as residents of this place Absolutely. I agree with you entirely. And, and I think one of the ways of looking at folklore uh, and these stories within that sphere, I guess, is as a kind of forgotten history. You know, we remember what happened in the wars and we remember what <laughs> happened in royal families and all these kinds of, you know, pieces of history that we're, we're taught as part of a normal school curriculum. Uh, but these other pieces of history, these social history elements, often are getting lost, aren't they? Yeah, and perhaps that's a failing in the academic system in the sense that it's difficult to quantify stories like this as academia. Um, I mean, you, you probably know more about this than I do, but from my readings, every source seems to be, if not sketchy, somewhat vague is perhaps a, a better way of describing it. And there's no ironclad rule on it so i guess it's really hard for schools to be able to teach this as cultural history when there's no um official textbook on the matter shall we say um not that i think there necessarily should be an official textbook on the matter but i, I certainly feel that there should be at least an understanding and a connection to this i guess as well um because for years and years people kind of classically educated the classics they sort of went with let's look at latin and greek and you know the the, the stories that came out were often those based stories you know aesop and, and, and people like that and whilst those are amazing stories it was at the the cost of the cultural um, Celtic, British, Pictish, old, old um, uh, British, I guess, for, for want of a collective term, stories that, that are native to these lands. Yeah, and, you know, it is possible to, to study this quite happily. This is a whole different discussion for another day, yeah. I guess, really. But uh, <laughs> in, in other countries, there are, and we've had guests in the past on this podcast who teach folklore in other countries, there, there are many, many courses that you can follow. But in the UK, sadly, it's very, very difficult now. Yeah. Yeah, it's not something that's classically taught to people in in their in their standard education. You'd you'd have to go looking for it to find it within the UK. Yes, you you would indeed. That's very true, um, and in a number of different disciplines. Uh, but let, yeah. let, let's move on and focus on the stories themselves, which is which is what we want to look at today. Now, mm. storytelling is very much um, an entertainment in a lot of ways these days. And and you you mentioned earlier about the kind of bardic traditions uh, and, you know, if we look at strolling players and minstrels and those sorts of things throughout history, they're providing an entertainment. But if we go back earlier than that, stories play a very different role, I think, don't they? Yeah, I mean, if we go back earlier than that, stories were an essential means of communication across generations and across... I mean, it, I, I guess if we really wanted to get down to the minutia of it, we could ask, you know, what is a story? And me explain to my wife, you know, how my day was. Is a story, whether or not it's entertaining, that's another question. But I guess in terms of the, of the roots of storytelling and, and how it was important, it was about preservation of culture and preservation of knowledge and the fact that now as a, as a storyteller um 
I choose to make those as entertaining as possible um, is is more about the um the, the 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 settings of the time and the trappings in which i typically tell a story mostly being relatively theatrical um but yeah if you, if you go back far enough it was all about preservation it was all about um uh understanding who you are as a culture as a people as a person and where you came from and because of that where you're going yeah and it was an enter- uh, as well as an entertainment uh, it was an educational tool, wasn't it? In many ways, I mean, Absolutely. you're 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 teaching people uh, the dangers of things. You're teaching <clears throat> morality and all sorts of things through the use of stories in in that early history. Yeah, and I mean that that's that's iconic throughout all of the different iterations of storytelling. Uh, I particularly find it really interesting when um, this happens a lot in Irish uh, uh, stories. How morality changes shapes the story. So quite often, if you look at a story that's pre-Christianity coming into Ireland, let's take that as an example, then the subject of said story will go and speak to the Druid or the wise man of the area. Post-Christianity, that's normally St. Patrick or it's a saint or whatever building they were trying to make their way to now becomes a church or something like that. So, I mean, it is relatively subjective to morality of the time, but you're absolutely right. There is there's always a lesson to every one of these stories and there's something that people can take from it and there's a there's an educational essence for each um each generation to take away yeah and these these uh these characters are quite common in in different formats of stories as well aren't they because if you look at um mama's plays for example and you have those kind of key recurring characters of saint george and the turkish knight and and you you find them in in different forms of storytelling as well i guess kind of motifs are carried through aren't they yeah absolutely and that's really um that's carried through across all different cultures i mean uh sort of japanese styles of theater indian styles of theater um uh, across sort of african styles of theater uh, famously the commedia dell'arte in italy and and with us i mean i guess kind of the the most common equivalent that we have in the modern day is the pantomime but that concept of iconic character who represents an essence uh, within society or an evil within society or a good within society it's, it's no accident that the audience always know when to cheer or when to boo when someone comes on stage um, in in those types of plays uh, because of that kind of iconic um, uh, element that that, that that comes with that type of story and and it's 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 preserved and it's maintained because it's important it's something that that every generation successively has thought this is worth saving this is this is worth uh having in our in our cultural education absolutely uh now i first came across your particular way of storytelling uh, and your performance um quite by chance through a, a festival that we were both performing in in different ways ironically um and it was through that, obviously, that we got chatting about about doing this interview and various bits. Now, so in order to illustrate exactly what you do for people, I, I asked you to record us one of your stories that we could play uh, on the show. So let, let's have a little listen to that now. Um, tell everybody a little bit about the story that you tell in this recording. 
Yeah, so this is a, uh, a story from the Isle of Man. Um, although quite a few different Celtic cultures will lay claim to the same or similar story. But the way I found it, the way I came across it, it was certainly a Manx tale. And they were very, very attached to that as an idea. Um, and I really love this story because uh, it has a strong um, uh, list of female characters, which is not as prevalent as one might hope it would be in, uh, in ancient storytelling. But yeah, uh, have a listen, see what you think. To the Isle of Man our stories now lead, small in size, though large in heart, beloved of the sea god Mananan, preserved by his arcane art. To a helpless mother with a feckless daughter, that's where our story commences. Perhaps the daughter's legendary beauty shall aid with mending fences. In the Isle of Mananan, now simply known as the Isle of Man, there lived a girl of unsurpassed beauty. Perhaps, in a sense of balance for the beauty they had gifted her with, the gods saw fit to inspire her parents to name her Pignut. Now, every man of age on the island, and some far beyond, had fallen in love with Pignut at one time or other, and I'm afraid to say it had made her vain and lazy. Her mother absolutely despaired of her. Oh, you useless girl, she would say. Oh, can you do even the simplest of tasks? Are you sure you don't want me to cut your food up for you? Oh, would you mind, replied Pignut. I've just done my nails. What's it, my girl? Her mother replied. You are to come to work with me in the fields tomorrow. There are sheep to be sheared, and then the wool must be collected up and spun into yarn. You are to help with every aspect of that task, my girl, and if I hear so much of a peep of complaint out of you, I'll, 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 I'll ruin your nails. <gasps> you wouldn't, replied Pignut aghast. Just try me, girl said her mother with a glint in her eye. And so the next day Pignut was taken out to the fields to begin work. To say she was gifted at the tasks, well, that would be a lie. She sheared the sheep so badly it could practically be called surgery. And the wool was scattered all over the fields. Pignut and her mother were obliged to spend the rest of the afternoon collecting it all up to be spun into yarn. Oh, you useless girl, cried Pignut's mother. Oh, to think I have raised you so poorly that you cannot even perform the simplest of tasks. Oh! At that moment, who should ride by but the king's son, Prince Hearthcut, on his usual evening ride? Dismounting, he addressed the ladies. I say, good woman, are you shouting at your daughter? Has she displeased you in some way? Who, oh, me? cried Pignut's mother. Uh, me, your, your royal tallness, as, as if I should have a daughter so poorly raised, but to bring me anything but the greatest joy and pleasure, she is an angel. Blessed of the gods, she is. <laughs> But uh, you were shouting at her, the prince replied. <gasps> shouting at her? No, no, your, your immense tallness. No, I wasn't shouting at her. I was shouting about her. Yes, I was clearly shouting about 
about her, shouting about her, the prince replied with confusion. Oh, yes, with a daughter like this, one is often drawn to shouting and praising, singing even. <laughs> singing? You, you sing about your daughter, good woman? Oh, yes, yes, that's what I said. For some reason, replied Pignut's mother. Well, said the prince, now curious, how would that sound? Would you care to favour me with a verse? Mother, please don't, cried Pignut. Quiet, my girl, rejoined her mother. Uh, his, um... Smooth hairedness has requested that I sing, and who am I to refuse him? Who am I indeed? In utter desperation, Pignut's mother opened her mouth and began to sing. Oh, <clears throat> oh, <clears throat> oh, come look at this lovely. Girl. The, the, the most beautiful in, in all the world. Well, why, she can weave and spin just right. Well, why, she could spin all of this wool in just one night. Oh, thank you. A silence fell, and eventually Prince Hearthcut responded. All of this? Uh, your daughter could spin all of this wool in just one night. Oh, yes, replied Pignut's mother, thankful that her song was over. Oh, yes, <laughs> indeed she could. Well, the woman who could achieve that task, thought the prince, could make quite a wife. Oh, yes. Yes, your royal highness, <laughs> such a wife she will make one day. Well, then, that is settled, said the prince with finality. Um, what is, begged the, her mother. What is, begged Pignut. Well, your daughter shall come home with me. And if she can, indeed, spin all of these in one night, then I shall marry her. But... If I find that you have lied to me and tried to entice me towards your daughter with deceit and trickery as many have done before, well then this will be the last time that you will ever see her again. Uh, do not mistake me, she shall not be harmed in any way. She shall be found room and lodging on my lands. But this will be the last time that you ever see her again. To lie to a prince is little short of treason, and it is only good sense to separate such treasoners before they do worse than they have already done. Mother, please, tell him the truth, begged Pignut to her mother. Quiet, my girl, her mother responded. We're no treasoners here, your royal highness. Well, then that is settled, the prince responded. My lady, come with me. Begged Pignut as she was picked up and carried away, but there was nothing her mother could do without revealing the truth, and the penalty for treason was death. At least this way they would all stay alive, even if they never would see each other again. And so Pignut was shown into the tallest tower in Prince Hathcut's castle and shown into some chambers. These shall be your rooms, my lady. 
You shall not exit here, nor shall anyone but my staff enter, for I must be sure that you have achieved this task yourself. I mean what I say. If you can spin all of this wool into yarn in one night, then I will marry you, and I will love you forever in the hope that you will one day love me. I wish you the very best of luck. May Memanan himself shine down upon you. And so Pignut entered the room, now filled with wool from her parents' farm, and, utterly bereft, began to cry. For a pretty girl, she was a very ugly crier. Now it is well known that the Isle of Man is one of the most magical in all of the British Isles. Beloved of the sea god Mananan, the ancient seat of his power, it's filled with mystical and magical forces beyond measure. Some of these are good, some of these are bad, some are neither good nor bad, but all are drawn towards the tears of a young girl. For where there are tears on a young girl's face, there is merriment to be gifted or mischief to be gained. And so it was with Pignut, as one such mysterious force materialised by her side. Hello! Who are you? replied Pignut, shocked. How did you get in here? Do you work for the prince? Who, me? No, I work for someone quite different. But uh, right now, let's say I work for you, eh? You... Work for me. Oh, yes. Your tears suggest that you need helping. And I can't help but help those what need helping. I'm, I'm helpful like that, see. Pignut stared at what she now realised was a woman. She was tall but stooped over with a pronounced hump on one shoulder. She wore a deep hood, but Pignut could see a beady eye and a long bulbous nose all red at the end. Her robes were stretched at the middle by a more than ample potbelly, and as Pignut continued on down, she saw the hugest, ugliest, hairiest feet she had ever seen with long, curling toenails. Taking a breath, she addressed the apparition. Um, 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 I hope you don't mind me asking, but, um, what are you? Oh, me, dear! The vision responded, why, I'm a fairy, but you can think of me as your auntie, your auntie Bigfoot. I how's that, she said, waggling a foot in Pignut's general direction. Pignut had never seen a fairy before, but she'd always imagined them to be more, well, magical looking. Nonetheless, Auntie Bigfoot was the only fairy in residence, and Pignut was desperate, so she opened up with the whole sorry story. Well, said Auntie Bigfoot at the end, that does sound like quite a pickle. Fortunately, I happen to be quite a spinner. Indeed, I'm sure I could spin all of this wool in just one night, if you'd like my help, that is. Now, Pignut may not have been the best at paying attention to others, but even she knew that a deal made with the fairies always came with a cost. Um, Auntie Bigfoot, she questioned, uh... 
What would you be wanting in payment for this? And if it's anything like my firstborn child, then we can frankly just forget the whole thing because I will not be party to any kind of child. Oh, no, Auntie Bigfoot interrupted. What do you think we are, those imbecile cobalts from the north? No, no. All I require is an invitation to your wedding day. I do so love a good wedding. (laughs) That's all you require? Oh, yes, my dear. That's all, said Auntie Bigfoot, extending a hand. Well then, done, said Pignut, taking it. Auntie Bigfoot bade Pignut sleep while she worked, and so as Dawn's rosy fingers made their way in through the window, Pignut was awoken. Wake, my dear Pignut, awake, for the task is completed. Pignut rose and saw the most perfect yarn she had ever seen. The wool had been combed out, spun into beautiful coils of yarn, neatly balled and piled around the edges of the room. Oh, Auntie Bigfoot, you've done it. You've saved me. But, well... What if the prince asks me to spin again? You know I cannot. Oh, don't you worry about that, replied Auntie Bigfoot. Just you be sure to honour our bargain. Just remember an invitation to your wedding day. You can find me with the first seagull of morning. They always know where to find me, the scamps. And with that, she launched herself out of the window and was gone. With nothing but the flutter of a cloak and the slightest hint of a feather. Pignut arose and paid special attention to make herself look as beautiful as she could, for today she would be engaged to a prince. After what seemed like an interminable length of time waiting, the prince entered the room. Pignut, my dear... Oh, my. You've done it, and such fine quality, too. I must confess I believe that you had lied to me, but I see that this is no lie. I shall, of course, have it sent home to your family's farm. It would not do well to deprive them of the fruit of their own farmland, but um, I should very much like to attach a wedding invitation, if, if you will have me. And so Pignut was engaged and swept up into a whirlwind of meeting the royal family and being prepared to be the princess and one day queen of the island. There was much more to do than she had reckoned on. At the first opportunity, though, she took in the invitation and headed out to find the first seagull of morning. Mr. Seagull, please take this to Auntie Bigfoot. Go, fly! Oh, I do hope it finds her, she said as she watched the seagull flapping ungratefully away across the sea. But there was no time to worry about that, for before long the wedding day was up. Upon her, it passed in a blur of songs and speeches, laughs and libations. But Pignut could not see Auntie Bigfoot anywhere. At that moment, though, a raucous voice cut fast through the crowd, and a familiar, filthy laugh echoed in the chamber. Oh, <laughs> you look beautiful, Margot, as beautiful as the sunrise, I would say. But that beauty would not have helped you in the predicament I found you in, said Auntie Bigfoot, approaching Pignut menacingly. No, no, 
Only hard work and paying attention would have helped you there, wouldn't it? And that will help you a great deal more going forward than any number of winning smiles and knowing blushes. Promise me, my girl, said Auntie Bigfoot, taking her hand, that you will do your best to learn a little of the crafts and the skills and, above all, the needs of this island. Of, of course, Auntie Bigfoot, but what if he asked me to spin, begged Pigna. Just you promise me, my girl. And you be sure that you mean it. Of course, Auntie Bigfoot, said Pigna, meeting her eye. I, I promise I shall do my best to learn a little of the crafts and the skills and, and the needs of this island. Oh, well, then you will make a lovely queen. <sighs> well, come along then. Introduce me to your handsome husband. And so saying, she grabbed Pignut's hand and swept her across the dance floor. Um, uh, 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 Prince Hathcott, my handsome husband, said Pignut, slightly desperately. Allow me to introduce Auntie Bigfoot, your royal highness. I am where Pigna gets her spinning skills from, you know. <laughs> oh, said Hathcut, slightly bewildered. And such fine uh, spinning skills they are, Lady Bigfoot. Oh, no, just Auntie Bigfoot, replied Auntie Bigfoot. I'm no lady. <laughs> yes, if Pignut carries on spinning for much longer, what? she'll look just like me in a few short years. Prince Hathcut observed the woman. A rictus grin stuck fast to his terrified face. Oh, oh yes, continued Auntie Bigfoot. Oh yes, all spinners look like this. Did you not know? Observe the hump on my shoulders. That's from years of leaning over the spinning wheel. Oh, and my beady eyes and bulbous nose. Uh, they're from years of inspecting my work. And my feet, for which I'm so aptly named. You did take the feet in, didn't you? Oh, they're from years at the treadle boards of my spinning wheel, you know. <laughs> oh, yes, if Pignut carries on spinning, and she grabbed Pignut's face, pulling it beside hers for a comparison, if Pignut carries on spinning, she'll be the spit of me in just a few short years. Ah, well, I mustn't keep you. I know I have lots of guests to attend to. And so, dismissing him, she waddled off towards the buffet table with a mischievous gleam in her eye. The prince stood there, stunned and desperate. Um, Pignot, my dear, <laughs> I do not think you should spin any more. Uh, we, we, we have such fine craftspeople on the island. Uh, it would not do well to deprive them of, 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 of the ability to ply their own trades in favour of, of my own wife now, would it? <laughs> Please don't spin. Half-cut, my husband, replied Pignut. I think you are very wise indeed. And so Pignut was never called upon to spin again. She never saw Auntie Bigfoot again either, or at least not to her knowledge. But she was true to her promise. 
and she did her best to learn a little of the crafts and the skills and above all the needs of the island and it was said of her that she ruled the island with as much grace and beauty on the inside as she had on the outside. So tell us a little bit, if you can, about um, how you're telling your stories in these performances. What methods are you using? How is the characterization working to to pass the story on to your audience? Uh, so in each of these stories, and in fact, I, I tend to tell these stories as a collection, um, which lasts anything between an hour and two hours. So you'll get sort of anything between seven and 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 ten or twelve stories um, within that time. So I blast through a whole series of characters uh, within that time. So uh, sort of as an actor, um, the characterizations I would say are are quite broad brushstrokes. Um, I, I don't spend much time sort of going into into. Uh, in-depth characterization but i i specialize more within this type of storytelling on um uh, kind of what we were talking about before that iconic essence and try and give every character a very strong visual representation a visual signature that the audience can immediately latch on to when it's one performer um, moving through all of these different characters so i i may do sort of 20 or 30 characters in the in the course of the show um i uh, I need to be instantly recognisable to uh, to the audience as now he's this character, now he's that character, now he's this character. And whilst I sort of move through a, a dizzying array of accents and, and voices, um, the physical representation is, is a massive part of that and it kind of attaches to it. Um, I think as well when I was when I was putting this production together, I was keen, as I say, this you know parable is a is a multidisciplinary um, uh, arts organisation. I, I was really keen to represent the music of the cultures as well. So each story um, from a different region or a different um, uh, Celtic island is uh, is preceded by a story that's native to that culture. Sorry, by a, a song that's native to that culture or native to that that locale. Um, and I just wanted to. Try try and capture the fact that stories were preserved in many ways better um, in songs um, as much as they are in 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 spoken word um, and so I, I sort of try and cross across that uh, that song to story um, boundary and yeah song's really important isn't it in the last uh, guest interview on the podcast we we talked with um the Helen Creighton Folklore Society in Canada uh, about the work of, of Helen collecting folk songs. And then we find in the UK, obviously, uh, Cecil Sharp and many others who collected lots and lots of traditional folk songs. They're really important culturally as well, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the... Um... Like I say, the folk songs in many ways have preserved slightly better, and I guess that's just because they have a tune you can hum and a, and a beat you can tap your foot to. It it sort of um, bores its way into your brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think the the stories are so important, and they're captured in song just as often as they're captured in story. And the songs um, uh, sometimes you ha you have to have a little bit more explained to you to understand exactly what the story of the song is. But uh, you'd be surprised how often people find themselves singing a, a, a tune that actually turns out to be thousands of years old and is is actually related to telling the story of 
some bygone Celtic hero who um who who's responsible for forming the giant causeway, for example. <laughs> you know, there's there's sort of all sorts of um uh, beautiful touchstones throughout the culture that people aren't even aware that they have, and that's mostly through the songs uh, and the preservation that that has. Yeah, you do find these similarities, don't you? In in the same way that you find these motifs that run through stories, if you trace back some of the the nursery stories or the fairy tales of things like Cinderella, for example, yeah. you go back through thousands of years, and you find it too, don't you? With the songs, you find you think you've got a song that's that's quite clearly stands on its own and then you find actually it's based on a much older traditional tune and then you find little elements of the song that are similar and you can never really pin the origins of a lot of these stories down yeah yeah that's absolutely true i mean the the most obvious example that springs to my mind of that is um christmas carols and how we hear them now is poles apart from how they were originally written and most carols were originally some kind of dance that was uh that was done throughout all different times of the year and then they kind of got morphed into a song and then the song once christianity came in got morphed into a more christian song that's where you get weird ones like uh three ships come sailing in where it's quite clear that the christian element has kind of been um uh, retconned into that song, and you know, I saw three ships come sailing in. Oh, and also Jesus happened to be on that ship. By the way, guys, <laughs> um, and I don't want to suggest I'm throwing shade on on Christianity. I am, in fact, a committed Christian myself. But the um, I, I do find it hilarious how bad the uh, the early Christians were at kind of retconning Christianity onto the cultures that they found, and I find it. Um, yeah, it's really interesting looking at kind of the origins of a song and where it actually came from and how it then developed into what we know it as now. And, and like you say, nursery rhymes and 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 uh, and, and fairy stories are, are a great example of that. Yeah, yeah, and, and this this Christianization of of songs that you're stating there that should really come as no surprise to us as folklorists and 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 we shouldn't be just pinning people down and saying oh yeah it's it's those christians that are responsible for doing that because you find it if you go back earlier you'll find then another group are, are pinning their particular standard onto something that existed before and it just it goes back and back and back doesn't it absolutely it evolves with the cultures that arrive at the time really i think and 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 is that a bad thing i don't know is it a good thing it's hard to say it's a gray area for sure but i guess we as humans adapt to the cultures we find ourselves in but the um, the common roots has to be preserved for me yeah and for me as a folklorist it's one of the areas that is particularly well it's fascinating and frustrating in equal measure i guess <laughs> it, it's yeah. fascinating because you can see these elements merging and 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 culturally things developing over time uh, by the same token it's frustrating when you're trying to pin an origin on something but it, it's part of what makes this such an interesting subject to look at for me i think yeah yeah i absolutely agree I, I, yeah with you 100 percent on that one uh, certainly as a storyteller and someone who makes his living out of telling stories one of the great things about it is that there is no definitive version of the stories. So I am completely at liberty to put my own spin on them. Uh, that doesn't mean I change facts or anything like that. Um, I, you know, I'm not a philistine with these things. I'm not sort of <laughs> going to trample all over them. But, um, but I, I, I'm, I've got leeway, I've got liberty to be able to put my spin and my particular stamp on these stories and, and, um, and sort of throw in 
comedic elements or, or elements that that I think will just uh, make them slightly more entertaining. I mean, if you go back to some of the source materials, and I'm thinking now of the Mabinogion, um, there are huge chunks of that where it's just people reading names. And if I was a real purist, then then I would, you know, have to go through and read all those names. And, you know, for the best will in the world, it's not fun. It's not exciting to listen to that. So, you know, having that kind of liberty to be able to, to um, put my own stamp on the stories and, and build them around what I think an audience will really enjoy um, and what is universally understandable to a modern audience is, um, yeah, it's a real uh, it's a real freedom for me. It's a real joy to be able to, to do that with these stories. And when you think about these stories as well, as, as an educational tool, as well as an entertainment, now... As I say, uh, we were talking earlier about when you go back through history and you look at these stories teaching you right from wrong or, or using them as morality tales or, or teaching you oh, stay away from that bottomless well. In, <laughs> in other words, you know, don't fall in big holes and this sort of thing. Um, now, their, their educational use is obviously in the 21st century somewhat different. But do you use them as educational tools as well? So as well as entertaining, are you working with school groups, for example, and, and people like that? Yeah, I am. And in fact, the, the story that that, um, that that we've listened to um, is a good example of that. As I was told it, um, there wasn't much of a moral to it, or I discovered it, there wasn't much of a moral to it. And um, there wasn't a great sense of Pigna actually having any kind of comeuppance for her lazy lifestyle. She just got kind of bailed out by a fairy and everyone was happy as Larry. Um but so I, I thought it was really important that there needed to be some sense of of uh, her learning from her mistakes and her understanding that the way she was living wasn't going to get the job done and that she had responsibilities now and she needed to be aware of those. So the idea of Auntie Bigfoot kind of saying, you know, I've done this for you, but you now have to understand that you're in a position because of what I've done that requires some action uh, and requires some consequences of you. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always really keen to find um, something that can be taught through any story, really. And uh, and when I do work with schools groups, um, certainly when I'm getting them to make their own stories and to uh, and to develop their own, uh, one of the major things is what do you want someone to learn from this story? You know, they can't just tell a story. I have to uh, I have to get out of them. What are you expecting people to learn? What's their takeaway? What are they What are they going to be changed by um, in this story? So you're using it as a tool then for creative thinking and for, again, teaching morality kind of in the background to that as well. So those things, in fact, still go on just in a different form. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as an artist, I firmly believe that art that has no challenge has less merit. I'm not going to say no merit, but it has less merit. Um, all art should have some challenge to you somewhere. And so if I told a story and it was lovely and it was entertaining and it made you laugh, but it didn't make you think, then I would feel that I had missed a trick in some way. You know, I'd, I'd missed something very easy. Um, and as an artist, it's, it's important to me that every story hits the audience on a kind of multifaceted, multi-layered way, and that they um, they come away from each story having been entertained, having been taken on a journey, having been educated in something of their cultural history, but also with something that that may stay with them as a as a as a challenge or as a as a lesson or a moral or, or something along those lines. I, I feel that that's incumbent on me as a as a storyteller and and kind of a lot of the. Um, 
of the heritage of storytellers. You know, it's 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 what storytellers, as we've discussed, um, are there for in so many ways. And it's important to me that I maintain that tradition. Now, how are you developing your stories? You're you're using traditional tales, but you're creating your own take on them. Um, are you setting out to look for stories that are not well known? And if that's the case, how do you go about it? Yeah, I am looking at for stories that aren't well known. Um, I, I sort of collect them as I go along. I travel around a lot doing these stories. And if I have any time, I'll always make sure that I, I head to the tourist information centre or I, I head to some cultural site and see if I can discover any stories that might be within the region. And sometimes uh, I do, but they're really short. Or, you know, it's something that doesn't quite have a, a whole show in it. Um, but but sometimes there's some real uh, some real meat to chew on in that, and uh, and and I can come away inspired for a for a full um, element of a performance. And uh, I um yeah, once I've found them, it's then the case of kind of boiling them down to their bare bones. Okay, what is this story? How does it work? What are the key points? What am I learning? What am I teaching? And then building it back up again in my own style and and making sure that. Um, uh, yeah, during the writing process, I go through that uh, uh, that fleshing out the text and, and making sure that it all um, flows in 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 my idiom, I guess, um, and then and then building that out into a fully fledged performance. But it, it all comes from the seed of just finding something that captures my interest, um, either in a book or in a region or uh, something that's handed down. Uh, so one story I tell is actually very native to near where I grew up in Selsley in Stroud. And my dad told me that story, uh, it's a story called Dead Man's Acre. Um, and uh, yeah, my dad told it to me when I was about six and it's always stayed with me. And there's four or five different variations on it, but I've kind of stuck with the one that my dad told me and it, it, um, it builds, uh, and I've rebuilt it and, and made it into one of my own particular storytelling styles. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting journey when you discover a new seed that you're going to make into a story. It's a, uh, it's quite an exciting moment for me in, in a kind of geeky way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you do develop and write these stories are, are you setting out to actively try and tie them in with existing folklore so are you saying oh i think there's a theme there with other stories i'll try and pull all that together or is is that just a process that happens automatically as you're writing well i mean that's a tricky question there's so much crossover in um, sort of British Celtic uh, historical stories that it's difficult to tie down like Scotland, Ireland, Isle of Man um, uh, Wales specifically as, 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 a, as a quartet of, of nations there will all try and um, lay claim to the same stories or at least the same characters um, and something in that is quite nice because you know you can you can kind of chart the progress of someone like Fionn McAmhile for example as he goes across from Ireland bounces across the Isle of Man and into Scotland and then back. Um, so, yeah, there are crossover themes, but I never necessarily set out to make something which um, has a perfect through line and a perfect link. Uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to tell these stories completely independently of each other and completely unconnectedly. Um, but when they... I, I, I guess the link comes through me, really, as the storyteller. It's, it's my style throughout all of the stories. And although... I tell them in slightly different ways and I vary up the style in which I might perform the stories. It all comes from me. And so there will all be some, 
universal uh, stylistic um, quality that, that that connects them. Um, and at some point, I will do uh, just a dedicated look at, say, the Fionn Mackenhouse stories, because there's, there's loads of them to explore, or I'll do one which is just dedicated to looking at um, uh, Welsh uh, cultural tales from Mabinogan, or, or I'll, I'll do some that are just Scottish, and, and that'll be really fun and really exciting, and I'll really enjoy that. But as it stands at the moment, I, I'm just excited to collect them from all over uh, the nations and bring them together so that people have kind of a a taster session of um, of what's available to them, a smorgasbord of, <laughs> of potential stories, if you will. Have you found anything on your travels that you think is something that was not well known until you rediscovered it? Has anything surprised you? Ah, oh, good question. Um, I mean, it's always known by someone. So, and quite often people who come along to, to, to my sorts of shows are people who have an interest in this already. So I might take it around a whole bunch of places, uh, any particular story, and it's brand new to every single one of them. And then I'll turn up at a venue and tell the story and they'll say, oh, my grandmother used to tell me that particular, I love that story and I like what you did with it, but I hate what you did here. And I, you know, <laughs> this bit was different when she told it and when she told it, he was actually a dwarf. And when she told it, that guy was a fairy or whatever um so every time i think to myself this is one that no one knows i found a completely unknown story how amazing i'm preserving something beautiful uh i then get uh you know suddenly rudely awoken to my <laughs> ignorance and it turns out that actually i'm just in the wrong region for everyone to know that story and where i five uh, you know 50 miles down the road that's as that's as common as muck and everyone knows that one yeah, but folklore travels doesn't it and that that's part of the difficulty and it travels and it gets adopted uh and then it gets changed and then then the dwarf does become a fairy or 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 what whatever the characters will alter as it as it moves around yeah, absolutely. I, uh, they take on regional um, variations that are really pronounced, even from sort of 10, 15 miles different from town to town. There'll be a huge regional um, variation as to certain elements of each story. Uh, and in one town, it might be a bull. And in the next town, that's actually a goat. And that's a massive difference when you think about it in terms of uh, a story element. Um, and it's, yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting how the, the towns... Um, build up their own stories uh, throughout the region. It's a little bit Boy Who Cried Wolf, I suppose. Um, you know, each each area will take on something that that they, um, they've they built up around their own understanding of it. Yeah, and this, this is why collecting is so important, isn't it? I mean, you go back to the mid-20th century and earlier, uh, and there were very prolific collectors of folklore who recorded lots of these stories and lots of uh, people's traditional beliefs uh, and that doesn't happen so much now, and we're we're at risk of, of losing still an awful lot if we don't collect it and record it in some form. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and I think um, uh, there there are a core of people who are passionate about this, but I guess uh, I don't know. Maybe we're living in the age of the internet, and everyone sort of assumes that it's out there somewhere, and someone's doing it, so I don't have to. Um, but the reality is. Uh, if if people like you, people like me, people who who enjoys podcast aren't preserving it, then it, it will die, and um, it'll happen surprisingly quickly. I mean, but there, there there are brilliant initiatives to make it happen. I'm I'm a huge fan of um 
a, a book that's in in production at the moment uh, called The Tales of Britain, um, which is uh, uh, being compiled to be essentially a an almanac of, of most of, of the, of the uh, sort of a compendium, I guess, of stories that um, from all across the British Isles. And it's, um, it's, it's going to contain loads of them. And it's, it's just a beautiful idea. It is. Um, it's a really great looking project. Someone is out there trying to preserve them for another generation. And I think that's, that's brilliant. Yeah, I think that project's being done via Unbound, isn't it? If anybody's yeah. interested yeah, it in is, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I would I would encourage people to check that out for definite. It does look like it's going to be really good. By the same yeah. token, we have we have a a decent sized I hope uh, audience base for this podcast. And and again, you know, as it, I would encourage anybody listening to if they hear stories or know of traditions that they think are, are not recorded to record them in some way, whether that's recording them as a voice memo on a phone, whether it's writing them down. You know, if you don't know what to do with them, if they're stories, send them to John, or if they're traditions, send them in to me and we'll preserve them, because otherwise they will get lost, and that's so important. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's it's it's absolutely right, and and they deserve to be collected. And quite often it's something that someone will drive past a, a road or something like that that's named, you know, the Folly Road. And it turns out there's an amazing story behind that particular road and why it was named that. And something momentous or exciting happened there. But everyone just assumes, oh, everyone knows that or no one knows that anymore. Um, and, and that's how these things disappear. So do record them and do, yeah, send them to me or, or, or send them to Mark and make sure that they, um, they're preserved for another generation. Make sure that they, they're recognised as important. Definitely, definitely. This has been a fascinating talk, John. I'm really grateful to you for coming on. If people are interested in the work that you do and in Parable, uh, where should they be looking and how should they be getting in touch with you and seeing what you do? Um, Well, uh, you can hit the website, uh, parablearts.co.uk. Um, or if you're interested in this particular element of Celtic storytelling, then go to the website theforgottentales.com, uh, and that'll give you a, a bit more of a flavour of, of of what that storytelling style and that show is all about. Um, and uh, yeah, follow me on Twitter uh, at Parable Arts, uh, on Instagram, and on on Facebook. It's always at Parable Arts, um, and we have all sorts of exciting stuff going on all throughout the year. Loads of different storytelling styles and events and and performances and tours. And um, yeah, uh, check out what's coming to your region. Check out what's going to be around you. Brilliant. I will put links to all of those on our website and in the show notes for this podcast, so that people can find find them easily too. Let's wrap up then. Thank by... you very much. No problem. Let's wrap up by going back to um, the other style that we talked about earlier on, and that's the style of using folk song. So we'll play out this podcast with one of your songs that you've uh, sent in for me to play for everybody. So let's finish off by you just telling us a little bit about the song that everyone's going to hear. Uh, Yeah, okay. So this song... um is this particular version of it that you're about to listen to is completely original to me. Um, the way that you might come across this song, uh, Merry Mountain Child, is completely different. And it's um, it's a folk song that's traditionally sung by men. And there's lots of little repeats and, and refrains that they go through. But I heard this and just thought, what a beautiful, beautiful uh, essence of lyrics. And I wanted to boil it down to something really simple and really pure. Um, and so it's all vocals um, and just looped sound of, of, of vocals in that and um, 
yeah, I hope you enjoy it. podcast is created and hosted by me, Mark Norman. Find out more about my writing and research at www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore. The Folklore Podcast art director is Melissa Martell. Find her work at www.mdmcreate.com. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to, but it is an enormous amount of work to research, create, record and write two of these episodes every month. And so, we have created a simple way in which you can help to support the ongoing life of the Folklore Podcast. Please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and click on Support. There are various ways that you can help, and they don't all involve giving us money. Even just leaving a simple review on iTunes or other podcast apps helps to grow our audience. So please do visit and take a moment to help us to keep going. Thank you for listening. The Folklore Podcast theme music is written and performed by Gurdy Bird.